0: Your film is now ready to be shown.
1: Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. Most of my listeners will by now be well familiar with the Facebook files, a series of Wall Street Journal articles revealing internal research and information from Facebook that show the company aware of a variety of serious problems on its platforms that affect people's lives and our politics. this week, Antigone Davis, Facebook's head of safety, was brought before the Senate Commerce Subcommittee on Consumer Protection, Product Safety, and Data Security to discuss the revelations of the data about Instagram's effects on children and teens, and in particular their mental health. Just before the hearing, the Wall Street Journal published the documents it had reviewed, which detailed the relationship between the platform and body issues, teen depression, anxiety, and even suicidal thoughts. We've got a two-part show today where we'll hear from two experts responding to the testimony and talking about what can be done to make change. But first, here are three voices, just selected clips from the opening statements that will give you a sense of how the hearing played out. First, you'll hear Senator Richard Blumenthal, a Democrat from Connecticut, and the chairman of the committee. Then, the ranking member, Marsha Blackburn, a Republican from Tennessee. And then, part of the opening statement offered by Facebook's Antigone Davis.
2: We're here today because Facebook has shown us, once again that it is incapable of holding itself accountable. This month, a whistleblower approached my office to provide information about Facebook and Instagram. Thanks to documents provided by that whistleblower, as well as extensive public reporting by the Wall Street Journal and others, we now have deep insight into Facebook's relentless campaign to recruit and exploit young users. We now know, while Facebook publicly denies that Instagram is deeply harmful for teens, privately Facebook researchers and experts have been ringing the alarm for years. We now know that Facebook routinely puts profits ahead of kids' online safety We know it chooses the growth of its products over the well-being of our children. And we now know that it is indefensibly delinquent in acting to protect them. It is failing to hold itself accountable. And the question that haunts me is, how can we, or parents, or anyone, trust Facebook?
3: Facebook knows that its services are actively harming young children. They know this. How did they know this? Because they did their own research, as Chairman Blumenthal just said. In 2019 and 2020, Facebook's in-house analysts performed a series of deep dives into teen use of Instagram. And it revealed, and I'm quoting from the report, aspects of Instagram exacerbate each other to create a perfect storm. And that perfect storm manifests itself in the minds of teenagers in the form of intense social pressure, addiction, body image issues, eating disorders, anxiety, depression, and suicidal thoughts.
4: My name is Antigone Davis. I'm a parent, a former teacher, and the global head of safety at Facebook. Like you, I care deeply about the safety and well-being of young people online. And I have dedicated the better part of my adult life to these issues. In my current role, I work with internal teams and external stakeholders to ensure that Facebook remains a leader in online safety, including issues of bullying and combating child exploitation. This is some of the most important work that I have done in my career, and I'm proud of the work that my team does every day. At Facebook, we take the privacy, safety, and well-being of all those who use our platform very seriously, especially the youngest people on our services. We understand that recent reporting has raised a lot of questions about our internal research, including research we do to better understand young people's experiences on Instagram. We strongly disagree with how this reporting characterized our work, so we want to be clear about what the research shows and what it does not show. The research showed that many teens say that Instagram is helping them with hard issues that are so common to being a teen. In fact, one of the main slides referenced in the article includes a survey of 12 difficult and serious issues like loneliness, anxiety, sadness, and eating disorders. We asked teens who told us that they were struggling with these issues, whether Instagram was making things better, worse, or having no effect. On 11 of the 12 issues, teen girls said they, who said they struggled with those issues were more likely to say that Instagram was affirmatively helping them, not making it worse. That was true for teen boys on 12 of 12 issues. I want to be clear. I'm not diminishing the importance of these issues or suggesting that we will ever be satisfied if anyone is struggling on our apps. That's why we conduct this research, to make our platform better, to minimize the bad and maximize the good, and to proactively identify where we can improve. And the most important thing about our research is what we've done with it. We've built AI to identify suicide content on our platform and rapidly respond with resources. We've launched tools to help control time spent on our apps. We've built a dedicated reporting flow for eating disorder-related content, and we offer resources when people try to search for it. We have a long track record of using our internal research, external research, and close collaboration with experts to improve our apps and provide resources for people who use them.
1: To put a critical lens in the testimony, I spoke to Data in Society's Amanda Linhart a quantitative and qualitative researcher who studies how technology affects human lives with a special focus on families and children. She has spent many years examining how adolescents and families use and think about technology. Most recently, as deputy director of the Better Life Lab at New America, Amanda focused on family-supported policies that enable balance between the personal and the professional. She began her career at the Pew Research Center studying how teens and families use social and mobile technologies. I recommend her report, the Unseen Teen, The Challenges of Building Healthy Tech for Young People, which takes the reader inside tech companies building products for young people, and exposes the challenges and contradictions of doing that work. Here's Amanda.
5: Uh, my is Amanda Lenhart. I'm the Program Director for the Health and Data Team at the Data and Society Research Institute in New York City.
1: And you are the author of this recent report, May 2021, The Unseen Teen, The Challenges of Building healthy tech for young people. Uh, Can you just give the listener a sense of why you set out to do this report?
5: Um, So I did this report with my colleague, Kelly Owens and I, and we really wanted to understand the sort of flip side. So I have spent much of my career um, studying the youth side, talking to teenagers, talking to their parents about their experiences with technology, but I had never actually spent a lot of time researching with the people who build it. And we wanted to know what are they thinking? What is the process? What happens inside a tech company when people are sitting around and building these products that we and our kids use all the time? Do they think about it? What are the dynamics that happen inside these companies? And what are the things that make people move? What are the things that make change? And so those are sort of the main questions that we asked and that we, that we focused on for this study. It's a qualitative study, deep dives with 25 people. So not a huge, not a huge sample, but, and I can't tell you uh, what companies and I can't tell you what people, and I can't tell you what products because partly to get a deep disclosure in this, frankly, this moment of a lot of. Um, contention around tech companies. Um, we offered this anonymity to people to allow them to speak freely. I can tell you that we talk to people in companies that you've heard of. Uh, we talk to people in smaller companies and larger companies. We talk to people uh, across the sort of uh, seniority spectrum. We talk to more junior people. We talk to very senior people. Uh, we talk to uh, we talk to people at social media companies um, is how I would describe them. And we talk to people um, at some companies that build games uh, or gaming environments. So we also talked to people in a variety of roles. So we talked to people who occupied roles in trust and safety teams, legal teams. We also talked to people on product teams, product managers, uh, engineers, designers. Uh, So we really did talk to quite a wide range of people uh, in a variety of roles. And that was intentional. We wanted to hear about how some of this thinking happened across different roles and across different companies.
1: We are talking uh, today, a day after uh, an individual with the title, you know, trust and safety testified to the Senate uh, about Instagram and its impact on the mental health of teens. And we're going to get into that a little bit. But first, you know, your, your report kind of sets out why these are complicated issues. And, you know, certainly that was on display in yesterday's Senate hearing. Uh, but can you kind of just give the listener a sense of some of the complications you see?
5: The complications are are myriad. You know, it's everything from a lack of a single definition of what we mean when we talk about digital well being and healthy tech. Um, I think there's also complications around the structures uh, that are in place within these companies. Right, there are incentives uh, at play uh, inside all of these companies that can make internal decision making really fraught. Right, the ways in which these companies are funded their fiduciary obligations to shareholders, basic expectations of a uh, market system in this country today have expectations and make promises of exponential growth of incredible, both in revenue and and in users and in time spent on these platforms. And that pressure is definitely at play in the ways in which some of the decisions get made within these companies and the ways in which difficult questions and sort of areas where there are not easy answers, how the decisions end up getting made. We could talk for a long time about the perils of late-stage American capitalism, uh, but I do think, in fact, that that is one of the things at play here that um, set up structures that make it really difficult for people inside companies who do see some of these things um, to, to to take a stand on them.
1: That does lead us into your key findings on some level. I'm, taken by this headline uh, on part two, adolescence are an afterthought at most social platform companies. Maybe talk to us a little bit about how you arrived at at that conclusion and what the drivers of of that.
5: I think that varies across companies, um, certainly. And it also um, varies across teams, right? Many of the larger companies have dedicated teams thinking at least about Currently, about user safety or user experience, and uh, many have dedicated teams thinking about teens. That said, um, that knowledge doesn't always percolate out throughout the rest of the company. So, people who don't sit on those teams, and this is one of the things that we talked about in our report, is this um, one of the challenges that that uh, companies have is um, is this siloing. Um, we we talk about it in terms of this idea of strategic knowledge, which is that companies can choose to know or not to know things, right? Um, and they have made decisions that make it easy for people to not know things. And one of those decisions is the structure of a company that places the responsibility for thinking about kids in a very discrete group of people who don't always, who, who end up from limited capacity in a large organization, end up parachuting in at the end of a process uh, rather than being a part of a process through the whole time. It also means that people are just not necessarily, there isn't an institutional culture of thinking about kids when you think about your product. And some of that is that kids aren't that big of a group, right? In the grand scheme of many of these platforms, um, that said, if it's a platform that has a bulk of its users as adolescents or young adults, there is more thinking about that. But for most of these places, even if a majority of American adolescents in particular use a platform, if it's still... Being used by an enormous number of other people all around the world, or being used by an enormous number of adults in other places, um, kids become a small fraction. And so, when you're thinking about where you spend your marginal moment in terms of thinking about, you know, how you're going to develop products and who you're going to worry about, you're going to worry about the biggest group of users because that's the group that's going to grow the, that's going to grow the most for you and create the most revenue. And so that means kids don't get thought about. The other issue is kids are hard, right? They're difficult. They're special, they're different than adults, there's developmental moments, we have a different legal category for kids, all of those things. Um, There's also much more intense regulatory and sort of legal um, concern about children. And so they are very, they're challenging. And so if you can not have to think about them, uh, it definitely uh, makes your life a little bit easier.
1: So Amanda, I want to kind of bring in some thoughts I had watching the Senate testimony yesterday, which definitely correspond to the first part of that, especially this idea of siloing. Antigone Davis, who is head of safety for Facebook, clearly great expert. You know, if you do a little research on her, you'll see her speaking at all manner of events around bullying and hate speech and uh, dealing with all the problems, externalities on on the web. But I guess to some extent, what you're saying is even if you know she's doing a great job on some level and is a great leader on that, that some of those expertise may not necessarily translate into the overall mechanism of, of Instagram or Facebook as a platform.
5: No, I mean, that's, that's in some ways the crux of what we found, which is there's a bunch of people inside these companies who care a lot about kids who don't want to see them hurt, who do good research, who do good thinking, who interact with outside experts, and parents, and families, and kids, um, and they can, in many cases, wave the flag all the time, raise raise concerns, um, and they don't get listened to, and their concerns don't get actioned on, uh, and it's, it's frustrating for them. Um, in many cases, I had after the fact, I spoke to some groups within these companies who worked on these issues, and they said, well, Amanda, we feel a little validated right? Like they ex- experience these frustrations inside their organizations themselves. But it really points to the fact that you can do all the great research you want and you can have dedicated teams, but if you aren't going to listen to them and you aren't going to make the hard choices, you're not actually going to create products that are, are, are necessarily better for people.
1: And is that part of this? I mean, you know, the struggle with the question on Instagram is it's almost like, well, you know, kids are a fringe group. You know, they're not the main user. They're not the probably the most profitable user that we have. Uh, Senator Klobuchar was trying to get to that yesterday a little bit. And some of her questions about business model, yeah. how much are the kid, these kids worth to you? Do you think about it that way? And, you know, she didn't quite get an answer, but that seems to be at play here.
5: Yeah, I mean, what's interesting is like Facebook Messenger for kids. It's a kids product that Facebook has used. Um, I actually don't know the details on like how successful it's been, but it has no advertising. And it's not a moneymaker for on on like a broad level. It's not a moneymaker for Facebook. So you have to ask why, why would you do this? Partly to give yourself a place for kids to be, to respond to criticism. Or others have suggested that it's about, you know, developing affinities and developing a sense of, you know, this is a space where I spend my time. You can see that people, it's hard to leave a social platform, right? Once you're on the platform, the stickiness of the network and the relationships that you have makes it very hard to extract. Um, and I think you can see that And Senator Klobuchar I was trying to get at that in her question, which is like, for, you know, what is a child who, you, who starts using your service you know, at a young age worth to you over, the, over their lifespan? And that's, uh, I think, a real question here. And, and, you know, many of these platforms are not there. Some of these sort of walled gardens for kids are not particularly successful, not just monetarily, but also like they're not a place where kids want to be. They don't end up being sort of useful in lots of ways. So it's it is curious to me the Instagram for kids choice as well.
1: I kind of just want to dig a little more into this idea of the extent to which the people in these tech firms that are purportedly meant to work on well-being issues, or they're representing the interests of people who might have a different set of vulnerabilities than the average user. Um, so that could be children, it could be um, you know minorities, it could be women, um, it could be you know any number of different groups on the platform. What is it about? the way tech companies work, the way product uh, teams work, the way that pushes their insights out.
5: I think, well, some of it is about the makeup of the teams, right? I mean, these teams are not, this is no, no secret in Silicon Valley. I mean, there's the, the teams themselves are not especially diverse. I think they're working on it, but there's still remarkably low numbers of black people working at these companies of visibly uh, different people uh, working at these companies and it's hard to build things um, for people who you who aren't represented on your team. It's just harder. You you can get around it by going and talking to users and doing a bunch of research, which is also something these companies need to do better at. But that's I think one one part of this is that if you if you haven't lived that experience, you don't know people who've lived that experience. It's really hard to design for it. And I think you you make a great point that this isn't just about adolescence. This is about all kinds of users who are minoritized in smaller sub-segments of the broader swath of people who use these platforms, people with disabilities, transgender people, people in you know, different castes in other parts of the world. There's lots of different ways in which people are um, sort of treated unequally in this world. And, um, and that gets, and those people sometimes don't get uh, focused on in these platforms either. And that's another, uh, I think, contributor. Uh, to why they're not, it's harder to build products for all these different groups.
1: You also introduced this idea of platform self concept. So, almost the way the, the platform brand thinks of itself and how that kind of plays into this. Um, what do you mean by this?
5: Yeah. So, one of the things that came out in our study um, was that different platforms had different ways of thinking about themselves. Um, and how a platform thought of itself really played into what it was willing to do and what it felt were its sort of obligations and responsibilities in terms of managing a user experience. And I would say they roughly divide into platforms that think of themselves as a public, as like a digital commons, a public good, a place for um, for sort of speech of all kinds. And then there's, uh, and those platforms uh, tended to have um, more sort of free speech, less regulation of speech, less regulation of the user experience, um, and sort of less desire to make potentially unpopular changes to content or or speech abilities within the platform. The other half is the people who view their platform as a place of play, a place of pleasure, a place of fun, and those platforms are much more willing to say, "Nope, you can't put. Pl- nope, you can't put that on here." We're done nope we're not gonna we're not going to elevate this we're not going to pass it along we're not going to let you put this on here we're not going to let you use these words we're here to preserve what we see as a pleasant or positive user experience. And this category or these categories of items, we simply won't allow. And that's a very different way of thinking about these platforms. And it ends up going towards um, the kinds of uh, regulation of the platform and the kinds of moderation of the platform and the kinds of, frankly, just governance of the platform that these companies are willing to engage in.
1: So when you think about a company like Instagram and the way that it wants to portray itself in the world, and what its brand sort of stands for and the way it must sell itself to advertisers. You can kind of imagine that a lot of the problems would start there. Sure.
5: I mean, and uh, Instagram is is very much, and I think their own research suggests, it's uh, it's a place of, of, it's very image heavy. It's very much about a curation of a life of a very um, generally a, a positive expression of life, beautiful pictures. Interestingly, I think in their own research, they also note that other kinds of platforms that they compared it to focus more on the face, like Snapchat, um, whereas Instagram is actually more full body. And they pointed to that as a potential potential reason why Instagram has more body image um, issues for um, a subset of adolescent girls. So I I do think how Instagram thinks of itself um, and portrays itself, as you said, to advertisers and to users definitely uh, has that. But also Instagram is within a larger company, right? And within a larger company that has other platforms and that the company itself um, has uh, potentially a, a different broader ethos about what its role is in the world.
1: Is this really back to the advertising business model? I mean, is that really the thing? Is that what's driving a lot of this uh, harm on some level?
5: I, mean, I think a lot of people point to the business model and the need for the focus on advertising. And actually, we even heard this from some of our respondents um, who who really um, thought a lot about the business model and the ways in which it was particularly something that that was problematic and challenging and something they wanted to innovate around, but which was really difficult to innovate around, right? Because you are, as one of our respondents says, you're making you're, you're, you've received this money and you've made promises to people who you often like and respect. And you want to deliver the thing that you said you would do. Um, And uh, you want to be able to deliver the kinds of revenues and the kind of um, users that you say you will. And that leads you down this road of making choices about keeping people on the platform about how you monetize them Advertisement means that you're the product, right? It's the, it gets down to that sort of essential piece where your attention is the product. You are the product. You know, other models have other challenges. You know, in you know, in app payments uh, are another um, potential model, subscription models. But um, as another one of our respondents also mentioned those come with a price, right? A lot of the platforms that are ad supported, anyone can be there, right? There is not a cost. And so you don't put up barriers to lower income users who may not have the disposable income to use your product. Um, And so you create other kinds of barriers um, to use if you you use some of these different business models. So I I don't know that there are easy answers here. I think they all have um, problems, but I would agree that the advertising business model seems to be a very problematic part of what's happening here.
1: Manda, did you get a chance to review in any depth the documents that the Wall Street Journal has published?
5: I had a chance to look at the Facebook annotation of the two that, that they dropped. I haven't had a chance to look at the full trove from the Wall Street Journal.
1: Did you find yourself having reflections on this report as a result of reading those documents?
5: I mean, I think one of my first reflections was that slide decks aren't always the best way to convey research. Um, there's so much nuance that's lost. And you can see that in the annotations that Facebook provides on two of the decks. Um, I think it's reads publicly like Facebook is trying to throw the researchers under the bus. And I think there's certainly some of that here, but. I also see as from a researcher perspective, like they're trying to add the nuance that's lost, that if they had done a full report, a written report with all the text and all the N and all the ends and all the data, and they showed all their transformations and they showed all their work, that would be more obvious. And there's more nuance than I think is obvious from these uh, these decks. And I also felt like there's, you know, again, good people inside these companies who are jumping up and down and shouting about these problems and trying to marshal the evidence to convince the powers that be that they should make really big changes or maybe not even build something at all right uh, And they're not they're not being heard. and in fact <laughs> the annotation suggests they're still not really being heard.
1: So I want to talk a little bit about part three of the report which is really on you know what can be done. Um, But I want to ask maybe first, what did you make of the Senate's performance yesterday? What do you think of their understanding of these issues or their interrogation of Ms. Davis?
5: Yeah, I mean, I thought... Uh, was it a lot different? I mean, it's, it's, always, it's always a little bit of, of political theater and sort of people releasing their own proposals and uh, re- uh, launching their own uh, new bills, uh, introducing new bills. I did think that there are tough questions that are being asked and need to be asked. And I was glad to see that. I, I do think there are moments where uh, there is some lack of understanding uh, among senators around um, how some of these platforms and products are constructed and sort of what they are particularly, I think, the Finsta issue, the, you know, fake or friend Instagram. I'm not sure how much <laughs> senators really understood um, how organic that is, at least initially, uh, that that's something that young people themselves devised as a way to manage complex, like, front stage, backstage issues, in these sort of very public presentations of themselves, and the exhaustion of that. So that was, uh, that was a little troubling to me. But I think at the end of the day, like, these kinds of things need to happen. Neat. How are we holding, our companies going to be held accountable for the harms that they do? And that's one of the things that's so hard, right? Like where, what are the levers that move the needle? These kinds of things are levers that move the needle. Being out in public, being asked hard questions, being embarrassed in public are things that make companies change. Threats of regulation, regulation. These are things that make companies change. And so I think we need these kinds of spectacles to start, convincing a company that otherwise seems unwilling to make some of these hard decisions in the favor of humans to maybe start making some of those decisions in the favor of humans.
1: You do mention, you know, negative publicity, even tragedy can force company changes, you know, but one of the things that Antigone Davis pushed back on uh, yesterday on more than one occasion was the idea that this research should be seen or its release should be seen as a kind of bombshell moment. Do, Do you think it's a bombshell?
5: I do. I do. It's not that the research itself was that surprising. There are, you know, researchers in the in the Netherlands who are doing great work, particularly with adolescents and social media that show these um, these ideas of um, both person specific effects where different people have different experiences on social media um, and that we're differentially susceptible to those experiences. So different people are really going to have, you know, very different responses to the same platform. Um, and figuring out why I think is a, is a question for 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 later. But the things I think that are most really problematic and troubling here are, are the parts where we learn about um, the ways in which the company uh, tried to make changes, particularly thinking about likes and the removal of likes on Instagram, tested it learned that didn't actually demonstrably change the mental health or well-being of the people who had their likes removed. Uh, But they went ahead and rolled that out anyway, because they wanted to show that they were doing something, even though they knew that this thing was not effective. They were trying to throw a bone to parents and researchers and other critics to show that they were taking action, even though they actually knew that that action was meaningless. And I think that's in some ways, the most disturbing um, part of all of this.
1: Is there anything that you're particularly excited about at the moment with regard to regulation in the United States or uh, elsewhere that that you could refer to?
5: You know, I am intrigued by the age-appropriate design rules um, that are coming out of uh, Europe. Um, I think they're in the UK specifically. I'm intrigued by that. I, I think there's more to it than just age-appropriate design. There's um, thinking about other aspects of self-preservation of of the user's uh, mental well-being that aren't age-specific and that should just be done for everyone. You know, I, I am always a little worried about proposals that focus around time and screen time because I think they miss the complexity of what's behind that screen time, right? You know, passive doom scrolling is one thing versus actively attending a support group on a platform for the same amount of time, but you leave each of those experiences feeling really different. Um, So I do think we have to think about, this is complicated stuff. (laughs) Um, I don't think it's easy. And so I I think right now, those are the things that I'm um, the most intrigued by, but I do think there's a lot of innovation um, in the space and I hope we have more because I do think these are tough questions, Um, but we have to do it responsibly because I think we can see from some of the previous legislation that we've had that you You create some sort of arbitrary gates and boundaries, and then you live with the legacy of what that creates in terms of like reg tech hollowed out spaces where people don't want to touch it with development. Um, And you end up creating uh, things that I think you don't expect from the regulations you've built.
1: You also have some suggestions here for companies and for the teams that are working on products that do touch the lives of teens and children. To those people who might be listening to this, and maybe there's some very frustrated people at Instagram or Facebook that are wondering what they should do differently. What would you tell them?
5: Yeah. I mean, that's hard because I think a lot of our our recommendations are more uh, broader structural ones, which is, you know, in particular the teams that we heard about in our study that were the most successful and felt like they had the fewest problems with the rollout of products in terms of like blowback problems they had to fix Um, were teams that had people embedded in the process from the beginning who thought about user well-being, particularly about kids, but the well-being of anybody, somebody on the team. It could be somebody from legal. It could be somebody from trust and safety. It could be somebody from who's just deputized to think about that as a part of the process. But if they're there from ideation to launch, you don't have like fixing the problems at the end and deciding to launch anyway, which is, I think, what happens a lot. Instead, you're actually building in from the very beginning and thinking thoughtfully about the challenges um, that each of these choices and decisions that you make about this product or feature or launch um, are potentially going to have. And I think that is one thing that I would really love to see change. Obviously, having more diverse folks inside these companies and figuring out how to better retain them. Uh, certainly, you can hire you can hire diverse people all you want, but if you can't keep them in your company, you're not, you're not making the change you need to make. Um, those are two of the biggest things. We also heard a lot about soft power and how a lot of company folks in these roles really spent a lot of time trying to understand the executives and leaders they were trying to convince and how to make their case for each individual who was going to be making those decisions. And while you know we wish that wasn't the case, I'm certainly thinking strategically about how you present all of your options to different people and the ways you make the case for the things that you're presenting in these meetings to enhance the well being of kids and adults. I think, you know, the more strategic you can be about that the rest of the world will thank you.
1: Having watched the hearing yesterday um, and thinking about the conclusions of your report, your findings, if Antigone Davis were here with us right now, would you have any advice for her?
5: Yeah. Which would be, you know, listen to your people. Um, they have things to tell you. And these decisions aren't going to be easy and you're still in a system that uh, may not even listen to you. Um, but whatever power it is that you do have, I hope you'll consider you'll consider using it and emphasizing the well-being of people over the profits of your company, maybe just this one time.
1: Well, I appreciate you uh, talking to me about this report, Amanda. And I think it, there'll be more to talk about uh, in the coming weeks as we, we hear more about this issue, because this does seem like One that's going to kind of continue to attract scrutiny as the whistleblower comes along next week, and perhaps there'll be more headlines. So, thank you very much.
5: Thank you so much. Absolutely. There's lots to talk about. Um, A pleasure. Thank you.
1: If you are enjoying this podcast, consider subscribing. Go to techpolicy.press slash podcast to find a link to subscribe via your favorite podcast service. While you're there, join our newsletter. To get a better sense of some of the legislative reforms that may help address the types of problems exposed in the Wall Street Journal's reporting on Instagram and teen mental health, I spoke to R. L. Fox Johnson, Senior counsel for Global Policy at Common Sense Media. Common Sense is a nonprofit that advocates around issues at the intersection of media, technology, and the lives of children. Arielle's work focuses on enhancing family privacy rights, strengthening students' educational privacy, and promoting robust consumer protections in the online world. Here's Arielle.
0: Arielle Fox-Jobson, Senior Counsel for Global Policy with Common Sense Media.
1: What's been your reaction to the goings-on in Washington related to Instagram and teen mental health?
0: On the one hand, this seems like continued loud shouting by Congress uh, to Facebook, and I'm eager to get to some actions that move us past hearings. On the other hand, I think that with these hearings and you know, with the one yesterday with Facebook, we see that Congress has come a long way from its initial questionings of Zuckerberg and other Facebook folks over the last couple of years and understands much better now how the platforms and the products work. I'm hopeful that there seems to be some coalescing around the fact that while we need to improve online protections for everyone, we really critically, desperately need to do it for kids and teens.
1: So at Common Sense, when these Wall Street Journal revelations were reported, um, I guess suppose I won't call them a bombshell, uh, even though you know, uh, Facebook's Antigone Davis pushed back on that particular word. What was the sense of common sense? Was it a sense of validation? Like, uh, yeah, we, we told you so. Um, or how did you kind of take that news as it came?
0: It wasn't a surprise. It was sort of like, we, we've been saying this for years, for, for a decade now, we've been expecting this at the same time. It's always sort of disappointing to be right yet again, until like, once again, have, Have Facebook be sitting on some information about ways that its products might have hurt teens or its employees were doing things that would hurt or harm teens and to have that only come out because it's been leaked.
1: Were there any particular revelations in the Wall Street Journal's reports or in the research, if you've had a chance to look through the six documents that have been made available now uh, that stood out to you in particular?
0: What's most surprising is that Internally, Facebook was very clearly saying one thing, like we see relationships between teen girls, especially mental health in Western countries. And in public, it was saying, you know, we don't have this research or our research doesn't show this. So it just like more blatantly lying between what it was telling its employees and what it was telling everyone else, including
1: Congress. Yeah, that does seem to have come through, and of course, a couple of the senators, uh, especially uh, Senator Blumenthal, were very irate over that in particular, um, that they had queried or put to Facebook very specific questions that, you know, had the company decided to answer them in a straightforward fashion, would have potentially drawn on this research. I mean, these were exactly the questions they were asking uh, now, in some cases, going back years.
0: Yeah. And it really begs. I mean, you're not supposed to lie under oath to Congress. And this really begs the question again of like, what else is Facebook sitting on or hiding? And like, this is just yet another example of how we really can't trust them, it seems, in almost any aspect of what they're doing or telling us.
1: What did you uh, make of Antigone Davis yesterday and the way she sort of comported herself before the Senate?
0: I'm not sure if I thought it was kind of of folks to call out her admittedly quite lovely curated background. i I didn't know if that was quite appropriate for a congressional hearing, but I thought that she, you know, comported herself in a way that we've come to see and expect from Facebook executives. she's she's very smart. She's worked in this space for a long time. I thought she gave, you know, intentionally, specific answers, limited answers to things um, where she wouldn't really fully address the questions. And you could see the senators getting getting frustrated, like when I think it was Senator Blumenthal was asking about, would she um, commit that Facebook wouldn't retaliate against the whistleblower and kept getting this answer about, you know, we're not going to violate the law. We won't retaliate against someone for coming to Congress. But there kept being these like very lawyerly caveats.
1: Her background as a lawyer did come through very much. Let's talk a little bit about maybe looking beyond. I mean, of course, we've got another hearing next week with the whistleblower uh, where, you know, unclear to me if they'll focus entirely on uh, the question of, of Instagram and teen mental health or Facebook's products and teen mental health. Where they'll go into some of the other revelations um, shared with the whistleblower. But Senator Markey yesterday was one of the few senators that brought up specific legislative proposals that have been made in past that might address some of these things. Uh, Can you kind of take us through a couple of these? We've got the the Kids Act and the Camera Act, both introduced in prior Congress. What might come of the resurrection of these particular bills?
0: I think there are a couple... A handful of bills, um, including kids and camera, that would start to solve some of the problems that we're seeing online with kids. And so Kids Act was reintroduced yesterday um, by Markey and Blumenthal and Representative Caster, I believe. And it would really address the fact that we currently don't have any laws for the internet, the way we have like the Children's Television Act for television kids aren't watching as much television nowadays, right? They're watching television, quote, on the internet, and they're seeing lots of content on the internet. And Kids Act would limit companies from using manipulative design that could uh, push kids into harmful or addictive behavior, like limit autoplay, limit nudge techniques, and like push notifications and things like, you know, Snapchat has its uh, snap streak feature where if you communicate every day, you get badges. And when you talk to teens, uh, they they get really stressed out if they're going to go on vacation and not going to have access to some of these apps and services because they're going to like, you know, lose whatever streaks they're on. So they do feel these, these designs are effective in order to get them feeling hooked to their devices. So the Kids Act Um, would address those sort of manipulative design features, so-called dark patterns. Um, It would also require much more clear commercial identification and advertising identification. You know, on, on television, there are rules about how ads are set off from content. You can't have host selling. You know, on the internet, host selling and unboxing are like a huge part of children's content these days. With endorsement ads and native ads and video games that are also ads, it's very hard for children to understand, you know, to even be able to identify an advertisement. It's hard for adults to identify an advertisement. The Kids Act would also require limits on amplifying sort of like harmful content to kids, the increasing pushing and amplification of uh, sort of extreme, extreme content and, It would also seek to support like positive educational content for kids. And this is also something that we see in the Children's Television Act. You know, it would seek to establish a grant program that would fund better, higher quality content. It would require labeling so that families could more easily identify um, healthy content. You know, I think one of the huge problems with the Internet in general, while problems are good things, is there's so much content out there and being able to curate it is, is really a key Key skill and a, a key thing that a lot of parents don't have have time for. It would also, you know, give more authority for auditing and whatnot to the Federal Trade Commission and and help us dig deeper into understanding how these platforms work. I think, and that's something we see across a lot of bills. But as we saw at the hearing yesterday, there's and with the release of of uh, these documents, there's so much going on that. The public doesn't understand and that lawmakers and policymakers don't understand about these companies being able to to look under the hood even if it's in as only a regulator can know the like you know deep dark trade secret details or whatever that would still be a huge thing and that's sort of a longer than quick rundown but that's a lot of the things that the kids act would do
1: so it looks at uh you know as you say transparency and auditing uh this idea of annual platform audits that would take place in order to kind of, as you say, get under the hood also creates a a council, a, a kind of advisory council uh, on children's online content. Do you have some sense of what that, that council would look at?
0: I think that the idea behind that is to try and identify what are sort of good practices and what high quality um, media is because they want to encourage the creation of more high quality media and not, you know, all these unboxing videos or other weird challenge videos that,
1: that go from either weird or pointless to,
0: you know, very harmful to kids.
1: So then there's the camera act. Uh, Tell us a little bit about this one.
0: Sure. And the camera act uh, has also been reintroduced this session and it is, it is very bipartisan um, and it had, folks who support it um, on the subcommittee on both Republican and Democratic sides from yesterday's subcommittee. So the CAMERA Act would uh, support NIH-funded research into the role and impact of media and technology on the health and development of of kids and teenagers. So it would fund longitudinal research to see, right now we have a lot of like, is this causation? Is this correlation? How does tech affect different kids differently? And that's something that we saw um, Ms. Davis talked a little bit about yesterday, you know, certain kids seem more affected or differently affected than other kids. Well, it would be really great if we didn't have to just rely on, you know, Facebook and industry research, but if we had independently funded research into looking at how media and technology affect kids, and that's what, that's what CAMERA would do. It would fund, fund that and give authorized $95 million over a five-year period, which compared to other numbers Congress is considering is really Not that much. I mean, the Camera Act, to me, should be like the first step in combating this problem, better funding for independent research. And the Camera Act has groups like Common Sense supporting it and, you know, Center for Digital Democracy. It also has the Internet Association supporting it. So it has support and no opposition as far as I can tell. That seems like very low hanging fruit and would be excellent and immediate first step for Congress to take.
1: I've seen the press release that announces the camera act early on, you know, senators, uh, Republican senators, Roy Blunt, uh, Ben Sass, Susan Collins, uh, others supporting this. And, you know, interesting to, to see whether uh, it will will kind of move ahead. Um, do you get the sense from your position at Common Sense that these might ramp back up now and that we might see movement uh, possibly even this year or early next? Or what, what is the schedule?
0: I think we'd love it if we saw movement on camera, especially this year, it just seems like such a no brainer to do this. And, you know, maybe that's part of the holdup that it's not the biggest, shiniest thing ever. Cause it certainly doesn't solve all of the problems, but at least starting to have independent research seems like such an obvious thing that everyone should get behind. And we hear leadership on both sides, you know, calling for more research, calling for better understanding. So, We'd love it if, if, if camera were able to move this fall, I think things are moving more slowly in general this fall than we might've wanted. I think that's reflective of, you know, society in general has some other priorities right now still that we hoped may have been past us. But to me, camera seems like the the clearest first thing, unless it's like not sexy enough.
1: Are there other reforms that you think are important to pursue at the moment? Uh, things that would possibly address you know the the types of issues that have been discussed in the in the last week to do with Facebook or or other key problems that you're concerned about there.
0: Yeah, there's w- one like key one, and this is both harder to do, but also maybe like more exciting to people, and that is to update privacy laws, and particularly to update children and teens privacy laws. And here we have update COPPA. We have a bipartisan, strong bipartisan proposal from Senators Markey and Cassidy. Um, and we have a strong proposal in the House that's only on the Democrat support right now from Representative Castor. Both of these would update COPPA to extend protections to teenagers. Marking Cassidy goes to 16, Castor goes to 18. Both of them would ban behavioral advertising for children, Caster would also ban it for for teens and for Marky and Cassidy, you'd have to get opt-in consent. You know, I think if we limit the data collection and the data profiling and the behavioral tracking of children and teens, that will also limit a lot of the targeting and negative externalities and things we see in terms of amplifying extreme content or negative content. But, you know, if Facebook doesn't put a teen into a bucket that says that they have low self-esteem or are worried about body image or are really into, you know, waif fashion, then that will be a good start to limiting what content is pushed on them. Um, We've also seen, you know, in the UK, the age of proper design code went into enforcement effect. Well, it's now October, went into enforcement effect in September last month. And we did see Facebook and Google and TikTok you know, all announced, not, not that they announced they were making these changes because of the UK law, but we saw them all announce in August that they were making changes to better protect uh, teenage privacy and more protective defaults for teens, less behavioral ad targeting for, for teens. To me, that sort of shows that regulation can work and that's something that they're going to probably have to do to be compliant with the UK. And it would be great if we had something in the US to require them to continue doing it here too. Because right now we're just kind of relying on them saying that they are going to do it and, and sticking with that intention, which going back to the beginning, it's very hard to trust some of these companies right now that they're going to stick with anything that they say today.
1: And Tiffany Davis did a lot to suggest yesterday, or she tried to suggest that these Wall Street Journal revelations and the research that have been now put into the public domain is not a bombshell. She said that a couple of different times. Um, of course, senators disagreed with her uh, from your perspective. Is this a bombshell moment? Does this move things? Uh, do you feel like your efforts at common sense and the advocacy community more generally are reinvigorated by this event?
0: Yes. I think it's clear from all the activity and all the interests and all the attention that this is a bombshell and we are seeing renewed vigor and interest among policymakers in this topic. Um, I've been doing this long enough that I've seen bombshells before with the renewed interest and then nothing actually happens. But it does seem like a lot of pieces are colliding right now. This is colliding with, you know, Congress's interest generally in doing something on privacy and sort of general Uh, displeasure with the tech industry over the last couple of years. So it very well could be the thing that pushes us over the top and crystallizes us towards doing something at the very least to protect uh, kids and teens. I also just with respect to Facebook sort of downplaying this, whenever information comes out about Facebook doing some strange or creepy thing to young people, they either they always downplay it or they say it was like a rogue employee who was like allowing marketers to target kids who were not feeling so great, or it was some like mistake in the system. And I think we should all know better by now. It's not like a flaw in the system that allows these things to happen. And these, this research really shows that like, it is part of the system. It is part of what's built into their model. And when these negative reports come out, it's not just an accident.
1: You know, I guess that kind of speaks to the general tone and tenor of the testimony yesterday as well. I mean, and you see this with other senior executives that present. There's there's almost a kind of affront to the idea that they've done anything wrong uh, or that they've intentionally done something wrong, um, which does seem to slightly miss the point to me you know, that, you know, there's something systematic going on here the in the company's behavior where even possibly – good intentioned individuals sort of get subverted.
0: Yeah, I think there's, and there's something to the fact that, you know, a lot of times Ms. Davis was like, I'll have to talk to my team. I'm not sure which individual would be responsible. I need to, and, you know, that makes sense at such a large company, but there's a very, it's very difficult to find anyone to hold account unless we want to find a couple like, you know, bad or rogue employees to hold account when they, some leak comes out about something bad that happened. It's hard to not have anyone be the adult in the room, especially when we're talking about kids and teens on the other side.
1: There was one highly publicized incident yesterday where Senator Blumenthal appeared, at least in the exact moment, not to understand what a Finsta is. And that kind of traveled around the web. And unfortunately, from my perspective, at least, uh, seemed to dominate uh, some of the discussion about the hearing yesterday, but some folks pointed out that even though Senator Blumenthal's earlier statements make clear that he understood what offense is, he may not understand why young people's anonymity uh, and ability to potentially use a social media account without their parents' knowledge might be important. Um, What did you make of this particular incident?
0: So what I um, took away from that incident was more the sort of interesting twisting of priorities that we got in the response from Ms. Davis, where she said that Facebook recognized that because teens were creating these Finstas and sort of secret accounts, they wanted more privacy. So Facebook was giving them more privacy. And I would have loved it if someone had asked them like more privacy from whom, because I don't think Facebook is tracking those accounts any less than it's tracking or profiling the other accounts that kids' parents know about. So it's sort of hilarious to me that, that Facebook is like we're helping teens evade their parents, which, you know, there may be good reasons for doing that. And it depends a lot on the teen's age. And we think it's really important that parents should be talking to their kids and, and setting limits at a family level, but that Facebook is, you know, helping teens evade their parents because it really wants to protect their privacy. But you know, from Facebook's perspective, it has just as much information on these secret and fake accounts as it does on the other accounts. I think one of the things I just wanted to highlight going back to, to camera, which is, I, I recognize again, not the most like exciting thing ever to lots of people is we do see re- Republican and Democrat interest in Facebook and other tech companies releasing their research. It'd be really great if we also got leadership on, and we do see Republican and Democrat support for bills like camera. It'd be really great if we got leadership on these key committees to also sign on to camera and to recognize the critical need for independent research and not just, and like Facebook releasing its own research is not enough.
1: Yeah. I mean that was the subject of another house hearing this week, of course, um, which uh, went much less commented on, um, in the house, uh, Science uh, committee, and you know, certainly we could hope that there might be some movement on uh, independent access to platform data more generally. I think that one's still maybe a little bit further along. We've got to get to a point where there's a, a good piece of legislation on the table.
0: Yes, I agree, and I think we're further along for camera, and we're further along for privacy. The, the battle lines are much more drawn. I think in the more general platform space. Uh, particularly for adults, Congress clearly has a a lot more thinking it needs to do because they don't even know. And we saw that a little bit at the hearing yesterday too, right? People are talking about censorship and other things that seem to come from a very different place.
1: Perhaps this this transparency question, you know, it does strike me as uh, ultimately a lot of the problems that get raised around social media platforms, they come back to this and there's a huge asymmetry, of course, about what Facebook knows about its platforms and what goes on there, what other social media plat- companies know about what goes on on their platforms. You know, With regard to other platforms, what does this mean for them? Uh, other platforms that you're also evaluating and watching closely, uh, Snap and TikTok and others. Do, do you think similar problems exist on their platforms and they're just sort of lucky to evade scrutiny because Facebook's under the gun? The,
0: sh- the shorter answer to that is yes, more from a... From a thinking perspective, not from an I've seen internal documents from any of these comp- companies' perspective. But um, what we have seen is they have similar problems with targeting of inappropriate content. They have similar problems with underage users. I would not be surprised to see them hauled in before Congress as well.
1: So, certainly having more transparency for independent researchers would let us understand these problems across all platforms. All right, thank you so much for joining me today. And I hope we'll get to talk about these things in future in a less fraught moment.
0: Yes, maybe when something has happened, something like good has happened. Uh, thank <laughs> you for having me.
1: That's it for this week's show. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at Techpolicy.press. Or find us on Twitter at Tech Policy Press. Thanks to my co founder, Brian Jones, thanks to our guests, and of course, thank you for listening.
3: Tech Policy Press